To ship, of course. It's that time again. Welcome to episode seven of the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Buildange on Twitter and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. And today is a first. I think we have everyone on the same show at the same time. So who's here with me tonight? It's uh, EJ Sermella here in lovely Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's uh, Yusuf, at Build Scientist on Twitter. Uh, Seth Thomas at Cheese Plus. This is Sasha Bates at BrattyRedhead.com. And Sasha, you are doing boot camp, and I don't mean the Apple variety. Yes, I'm getting up at 5 a.m. way too many times during the week and uh, <laughs> suffering mightily. <laughs> is stuff starting to hurt? Uh, I destroyed my legs last Friday. I mean, by the time Friday night rolled around, I could barely walk. And Monday morning, I couldn't go to boot camp. Actually, I had to wait and go to Monday evening spin because I was still just yeah. toast. Yeah, I've, I've done that too, and it, it's it's bad. But you'll, you'll feel great in a few weeks. It's, yeah, you know, splitting hobbies between biking and stuff and then all the open source stuff that I do, it was easier when I just like to bike, I'm telling you. <laughs> this is way harder. Yeah, yeah. Well, so episode 7's discussion, bootstrapping developer workstations. Is it possible to use DevOps and build infrastructure automation to get developer environments set up faster and with less headaches, making the developers that we support productive more quickly? Uh, We're going to discuss exactly that. But before that, news and views. But before that, I wanted to mention, I will be out in EJ's neck of the woods in Boston next week and in New York uh, later in the week. And we'll be doing a roundtable talk on DevOps and release engineering on Thursday, October 4th at 7 p.m. in the Wall Street Atrium. So I will be headed out there to do that. And then after that, we're going to do happy hours. So feel free to join me for one of both of those events. And I will be posting more details on the Twitter sphere early next week. So look for that if you're in the area. So news and views. Uh, I heard there was a OMG GitHub outage. Seth. Yes, so uh, so GitHub. So I don't. I mean, there are a lot of people who are very aware of it. I use it, you know, every day. So for two days, they basically were having failover problems with their MySQL clusters, and this actually ties back to our conversation of is there such thing as too too much automation? This is a case where they're automatically instituting failover, and in this case, it bit them because it just kept crashing the clusters when they were trying to fail over and fail back as they were bringing you down boxes online. So it was just, it was a really big outage. Um, I think they were down for several, several hours, but they posted a really great postmortem on their blog. And it was a good, like I said, a good example of when you can just automate a little bit too much. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the snarky response I always have when when GitHub goes down and the Twitter sphere lights up with that is is decentralized version control isn't that decentralized is it and then of course everyone reminds me well we could still check in and that's true but I always it's it's always interesting I mean GitHub seems to have these kind of outages I don't know what every once every three months you hear something like this and yeah, I mean, I, it's usually not this. I mean, this was a this is a serious outage. They've had hiccups before, but this is the first. I think like this is major. I remember some other pretty big ones, but what I find interesting whenever they have an outage is I find an outage. I find a couple things interesting. First of all, you find a set of people that it breaks their entire world that are GitHub users, and then you find a set of people who are GitHub users that that to the point that it is actually de- decentralized. That they don't even notice it, so they can you know be down for like a day, and if they don't happen to push, like they're fine, or they don't happen to deploy. I don't know. It's interesting to see how, you know, we, we talked a couple episodes ago about their VC money that they just got. And so how that changes, you know, the, the bottom of their postmortem says they're looking at their software, the infrastructure software and the methodology. So it'll be interesting to see, I mean, when you have different resourcing, you're going to make different decisions. And 
what will change in that regard. Before we move on from this real quick, though, with regard to GitHub, any of the places I've ever worked where they're using Git, they also have some internal either GitHub, I think it was called like GitHub Enterprise, or before it was GitHub FI, right? Uh, essentially GitHub that you can install within your firewall or Gitosis. And I don't know if anyone's looked at this, but there's another tool called Roadcode that supports both Mercurial and Git. It's none of these, none of these la the latter two definitely are not as good as uh, GitHub, obviously. But in this case, these people would have totally been unaffected, right? If they just lived within their own ecosystem. So yeah, you could you could certainly do that. I mean, we something we used is you know we ran our own Git. We ran a clone. We took somebody who had already sunk the latest and just made an internal clone that everyone could connect to. So no one's work was really that you know that slowed down, um, but it's, a lot of people I know couldn't do anything. But there's a lot of you know useful testing tools like Travis CI that uses GitHub for your project. So if you do build infrastructure, you're you're still relying on GitHub at some point, and that's unfortunate if if you don't plan alternatively. Yeah, well, a lot of people make GitHub the center of their world, and I'm sure GitHub likes that. And there are reasons. I mean, there are totally valid reasons to do that. It's great if you're running. A small web startup that's got three people, and you know, you find yourself a year, six, eighteen that's months later with ten people or fifty. It's great to not have to hire and worry about someone managing your source control system. But there's a you know flip side to that, as it is the case with all the cloud stuff, right? Yeah, actually, I guess I feel lucky. We just we had a tiny repo. Most of our stuff uses Subversion, but we had a, a small repo for our development tool set that we actually had out of GitHub that we just moved into our own private stash setup, which is Atlassian Git, basically. Hmm, Atlassian nice. Git? Yep, and now we privately host that. Interesting. What's Atlassian Git? Like Atlassian offers some internal Git yeah, server? Yeah, it's, it's Stash. It's, oh, okay. it's, yeah, it's just Git for... Oh, I thought, it's, it's I thought when you said Git. it was our own, our own internal Stash, I thought that was your calling it your Stash. No, that's actually the product name. And uh, we just started using it. Huh, interesting. Uh, Yusuf, you pointed us to a blog post by John Carmack on static code analysis. Yeah, really interesting uh, discussion about static code analysis. I was really surprised to see, you know, this blog post from him. Uh, for those of you who don't know who John Carmack is, he's of uh, the infamous id software guys who do the gaming engines for you know, all those uh, first-person shooters, and uh, I don't know what the latest games are. But in any case, so the article, you know, kind of goes into detail about why they do static code analysis at, um, at id and it's a C, C++ code base, I guess, that they're dealing with. And one of the things that, you know, he points out is you want to have criticism of your code, but you have to, be, you, you know, you have to be open to that idea. And the various um, static analysis tools that are out there allow you to to kind of get a, a, a sort of an automated report of um, some of the issues that you may, you know, may have in, in your code. And one of the things that he pointed out in the blog was, I guess, the biggest issue that they went into is uh, null pointers. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I, overall, you know, it's it's a fairly long article, but it, it's really interesting to see somebody from sort of that background saying, you know, one that they use those type of tools and 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 also uh, promoting it. So what I thought was interesting is he actually does a really good review of the current state of uh, static code analysis tools, which is which is nice. I mean, I think a lot of people who've looked at it know Coverity, but he talks about he talks about Coverity. He talks about a bunch of other ones that are that are newer tools I hadn't even heard of. Uh, my experience with code coverage tend or static code analysis tends to be people buy Coverity, which is super expensive, and he actually talks about that, and they put it into their CI system and usually they do it as a separate build but it takes so long to do the analysis and you need such a beefy machine to do it that it becomes a column or a job 
on the CI server that no one ends up looking at because the job's back up because, you know, a build with uh, static code analysis takes eight hours to do instead of four if it's a big build or something like that. So I, I think there's a, and he, he speaks to this, there's a cultural hurdle to get over where you kind of value static code analysis. And, and I, I think an easy way to start, and he makes reference to this, is just with warnings. You know, he said, we have... Uh, on our release builds, warnings or errors. And if you can get over that cultural hurdle, which I, I worked with a client where we actually did that, and we found, like, I think 30 bugs that were warnings. And people, they were warnings that people always ignored, and when they, somebody tracked them down, they were actual bugs. So, so yeah, yeah. O- o- overall, I thought it was a really, like I said, it was a really interesting article. Um, I think that, you know, the, um, he, he kind of makes a, a, an interesting point at the end of the of the post, I guess he he uh, references a, a tweet uh, from oh, somebody. Yeah, that was Dave great. Tweet. Well, he he says something like, uh, "The more I push code through static analysis, the more I'm amazed that computers boot at all." So I think it's I think it's amazing that that a game studio is actually doing static code analysis from awesome, from what right? I, from what I've seen. Yeah, it's I'm just like wow, because when he when he you know it doesn't surprise me when Carmack does it, but right. the fact that he was the extent I was like, wow, you actually care about your pipeline and your tooling and all these things and. That's for me in a rarer experience, and so I was just like static code analysis. Somebody actually does that and uses the results and cares. My God! Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so we use it. We use it regularly. Um, where where I'm working right now is Java based, and we use a tool called Sonar, which sort of aggregates things like coverages, code coverage, code coverage results, uh, CPD for copy paste detection, PMD, all these different rules, uh, find bugs, check style, all these things, and there's a million knobs and dials, and you can set it to. What we do is we have some nightly builds that will run and run sonar. And if we set thresholds too, so if code coverage drops below a certain threshold, uh, it's a warning. And if it drops below another threshold, it breaks the build. Right. So everyone is notified that you know when uh, Yusuf and Paul just checked in a whole bunch of their code, didn't add any uh, unit tests to cover this, and it broke. And then. It, it highlights a couple things. Like obviously, there's some reasons why you wouldn't want to. You'd never want to unit test like Pojos or, or uh, Java Beans or something like that. But then you would have to, you know, update your Sonar configuration. But anyway, it just sort of highlights this kind of stuff. I, ju- I just wanted to make sure that we talked about Sonar if we're going to bring up static code analysis. I think it's an yeah. awesome tool. Yeah, I think it's just very valuable to have that insight into. It's just more. It's just more metrics for your for your code base, which is always good. Instrumentation's awesome. Yeah, one, one last. Sorry, one last thing. I'll get off my soapbox. The other thing you can do too is it's completely configurable, so don't dismiss it right away. Is you can add this plugin called Technical Debt, and it will attach a dollar value and hourly hour a time to correct these issues. Right. So if you run static analysis, it will tell you, uh, you know, to correct all these issues, it's going to be you know ten thousand dollars and you know five hundred man hours to correct this thing. And obviously, it's all configurable, so you can adjust it for your region. But sometimes that that number has been very helpful for me to go back and explain it to product management and say, this is why we can't just take your new feature and slam it in sideways really fast because the code base now is very old and brittle and we've slammed in too many things sideways and you can't just do that anymore. It requires a major refactoring and that's what the technical debt uh, dollar value is representative of. I'd love just right. a graph of that over time. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, seriously, check it out. You need to metricize it against the cost of cheap support though. <laughs> Right before you could actually know the true difference in values. My concern would be when you get too big to fail on that graph. (laughs) (laughs) Or the one guy who knows everything about stuff that that needs to be supported by hand on that graph. 
you know, yeah. what's the what's the what's the the risk for keystone? getting hit is by there, a bus? Is there? Yeah, I was gonna say, is there a bus, <laughs> bus metric? Is there a bus factor plugin? <laughs> yeah, you know, that'd be that, okay. I'm, I know my first Jenkins plugin. It's gonna be the bus factor. Bus I think that'd be really sad too. Somebody's gonna look at the the dollar value and be like. It'd be way cheaper to hire an intern to keep yeah, this jetty yeah, server Yeah, it would be way cycled. cheaper to hire offshore <laughs> support, right? Than right. it would be to actually fix that stuff because yeah. that's how that's how people think often. Yeah. Now yeah, we're well, sometimes. Sad. Yeah. Sigh. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we're we're gonna talk about something more exciting, hopefully, more happy bootstrapping developer environments next up on the ship show. Back to the ship show. I'm Paul Reed. So on the docket tonight, bootstrapping developer workstations. Can the automation and configuration management tools we all know and love scale up to supporting a group of developers or even the entire company's engineering organization? And does it even make sense to do that? So Sasha, you've been dabbling with this idea for a few weeks now. And uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've been working on? Dabbling is a good word for it. Um, I started a new gig in August with a fairly large enterprise and in the dot-com area, and when I got in there, you know, a lot of us get Macs, not everybody, but a lot, and uh, they had some some documentation set up on how to get your developer stuff going, and some scripting, like shell scripting for the Macs, and, and uh, something similar for Windows. I think they actually, I actually don't know what's in there for Windows, but it's it's similar. And uh, the, the deal was, uh, after you do these 10 or 15 different steps, now you can run the install script, and I was like, What? That's worse in some ways. I mean, so what I kind of did, I'd already been dabbling with the idea of doing it on my own workstation. I've been a Mac user now for about a year and a half. And I got a Mac when I started programming because programming on Windows is, I don't know, an exercise in, I don't even have the words for what it is. Really. <laughs> I don't have anything absurd enough, really, to even go there, right? So anyway, that's why I got a Mac, and, and I'm really happy with it. But I pretty much, it just was a mess, right? after a year of not really, I, I know Linux and Unix really well, but just because a Mac looks like a Linux box doesn't make it one at all. And right. I made lots of mud pies on my Mac, and I wanted to rebuild it, but I didn't want to have to rebuild it by hand. And So I'd already started toying with the idea of building some automation. Josh Timberman of Ops Code has been working on this for a couple of years on his own stuff. He's been automating his own workstations for quite a while, and uh, he had his own really great system worked out and has he's been refining it all along a lot of really great stuff and there was a really great presentation this year at chef conference by pivotal labs on what they do to bootstrap their workstations they all have a a remote image that once it once it fires up it actually builds everything for them and they have a development workstation ready to go they use anonymous laptops, right? So for their projects, they every time they start a new project for a client, they they wipe their laptops and start over with these. And, and laptops don't belong to anybody in particular. They just they use whatever laptop is there. So that's that's actually interesting because that forces a lot of different behaviors. Yeah, that you they otherwise... have to account for a lot of different tastes still. So they install things like RubyMine and IntelliJ and, and Sublime Text, I think. And there's like a whole bunch of Emacs stuff and and the Vim dot files get in there and uh, a lot of different IDE 
setups, get up right. there and stuff. But yeah, they, they do have a lot of like commonly agreed to defaults as a team. They do a lot of really neat stuff at Pivotal Tracker. I could get completely sidetracked talking about some of their stuff that they do. Well, so with the, project, not, right? <laughs> with the project you've been working on, so have you been just doing the bootstrap process for your, just as a, like, let me try it on my machine to get it working? Or is yeah, this sort of something my, like... I was like, well, this is, the, this is all there is. Why don't I take a first project while I'm getting to learn stuff to write some automation for Macs and Windows? And I wanted to use Chef Solo to do that because I was planning to do that anyway for myself. And, and it seemed to really fit with what else was going on in the organization. So the reason I talk so much about Josh and Pivotal Labs is that they are, their work was, is the basis for everything that I've done pretty much. Josh has done some really great stuff and really done a good job abstracting resources and things so that it's really easy to use his cookbooks. And most of what I've used in the work that I've done so far has been community cookbooks with just a few touches of customization, really. Mm. So what I did basically is, EJ may find some of this familiar because we've talked about this a little bit, is that there were two major pieces to the workstation stuff that they have set up. One is all your base tools, right? So things like RVM for Ruby, Ruby switching and things and um, Chef and the tools that go with that, and the developer tools like uh, the GCC compiler and Git, and I, I put Homebrew on there too. And for Windows, we use JRuby because you can install the embedded Chef on Windows, but I believe that they had, they also use Vagrant to pop up VMs, and there were some issues with the embedded Ruby and Chef. So, yeah, that's kind of where I started, and then they actually had a second set where they do a whole bunch of Vagrant configs and then pop up a Vagrant VM and download an image and stuff. And I actually haven't gone there yet. So what I've done is actually just write some basic roles that install things like what I just told you. And there's also, and it kind of go, goes right up to the edge of Firefox and VirtualBox and stops right now. And uh, that's kind of where I'm at. I've tested it on my VMs and I tested it on my own Mac and I tested it on my corporate Mac and on a corporate Windows laptop that we have and I'm ready to start rolling it out to people in my area to get them to let me know how it works. So I'm, I'm kind of excited. It was it was a lot of work actually, more work than I thought. I paired with one of my teammates on it for quite a bit of it. We had to make some decisions on how to get things done. And, and uh, But the cool part is, is that I automated it to the point where you, if you have a subversion credentials and you can download a repo, you can download a Chef Solo repo, kick off a setup.rb that does a few prep things for you, and then it will download Chef, install it, and then kick off Chef Solo with some node data and things. That's pretty slick, but typically these sort of bootstrapping things, it's a race to some technology, and then from there you do whatever. So uh, in the, the place I work right now, I think the tool chaining and the bootstrapping they've done previously, uh, it was a race to get Ant installed. And once you had Ant installed, there was a big build.xml that ripped your system apart and put it back together again. And so when I started, a lot of the guys that were working on my team were all using, actually I was the first guy on this team, but they are using Ubuntu. And so what I did is uh, it was a race to get Chef installed and configured. Um, and from there, Chef would lay down Mercurial and retrieve a repository from road code. And from there, that was our dev bootstrap. And then it plugged everything in for the system. Um, but I went back and forth a little bit. You talked about some of the things that you put on the system. I went back and forth about the IDEs. So we have a huge mishmash of what people like and don't like here. Some people are using IntelliJ. Some people are using Eclipse. Some people are using this Spring Builder tool for Eclipse. Uh, I've never seen it before. And so at one point, there were these three IDEs. 
and the bootstrapping process would ask you, and then then we got a new hire and he just likes Emacs. And that's sort of when I threw in the towel. <laughs> like, <laughs> all right, by default, we can install Eclipse for you and sort of pre-fill it with certain settings. But beyond that, you're sort of on your own. And there's, there's again, we did RVM and we do Java, a particular agreed version of Java. Um, but I want to highlight one thing is we're talking about using this in Chef Solo mode. And for the uninitiated, this means it's sort of detached from the main Chef server. And so this isn't polling for changes or, or, or trying to manage the system. Uh, on the, the inverse of this, I know I have another friend who we probably have on the show at some point who, who uh, he used Puppet. And what he did is he has this live connection from the machine, the dev developer machines back to the Puppet server. So when they do change things like any bit of their tool chaining, there's, the dev systems are automatically updated. There's no conversation about it. So I don't know. There, there's pluses and minuses to that, and I don't know the, the nitty-gritty details. Um, so don't poke too many holes in that. For me. Yeah. Well, no, no. I was, so I was, Yusuf and I were actually kind of talking about this before the show because the way I've always seen it done, I'd be curious if this is your experience too, Yusuf. IT or tech ops, whoever it is, you know, you, you usually get a laptop and a dev machine or something, you know, depending on what it is. You get a couple machines at all, most of the places I've worked at in the past 10 years. And the dev machine has an IT image that has input from the development and engineering organization on what it should have on it. But generally, uh, so, so, and it, it's configured to work. So, usually you, you boot it up, you sit down, and it has a default password or whatever, and you log in and you create your account, and then you go from there. And it should, the product, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, native with MFC or, or GCC or Java or whatever, should build in that environment. And so, is that what you're kind of used to in terms of deploying, like getting new developer laptops? That image or, or, is always out of date. Well, I was going to get to that. I was, no, I was going to get to that. That, but, but, but what that I was going to say is, is always out of date. It's, it's more harm than good. Well, and if you're in a big enough company, you just have so many, so many diverse requirements depending on where you're developing. That I don't see that. That's I don't think that's really realistic anyway. Yeah, yeah. So I, I agree with all of that. I and I was getting to that. But what I was saying is, is that was where that's how I always have experienced it. Even recently, I mean, it's that, and it's what you said. There's like a wiki page that's got 45 steps, and 40 of them are garbage. They're not what you do anymore. And so, but but that seems like that's the state for the most part right now of the way kind of developer workstations get deployed to developers. It's it's interesting, EJ. You were saying that uh, your friend that was doing the puppet stuff, where you just get the new tools and you don't have a, a discussion about that. That would seem like that would take a lot of engineering cultural either work or just you have high enough and that's the way the the culture is. It's like this is what we do because if you're using certain tools or, you know, I could see cases where like the sustaining team needs the older version of the compiler because they do sustaining work or whatever it is, right? That's always been my initial kind of I don't think this is going to work because there's so much customization and developers don't want things changing on the machine without them doing something. But that's yeah. not the... And I didn't oh, know... I'd, I'd, I'd have to totally agree with that. I, I, you know, Me too. I've never really been in an environment where the build-release engineer or the DevOps person is responsible for actually, um, you know, bootstrapping developer workstations. Putting, kind of putting my developer hat on, I, you know, if I was a developer, I don't know that I would like to have 
kind of a uh, something forced on me. Um, yeah, I and think- every time something went wrong with something like that, anywhere near like within a five day period, is somebody updating your laptop for you? You could totally blame it on them too. And I, your your engineer, what I would think would be buried in yeah. people going, my stuff doesn't work, and you must have changed it. Yeah, well, again, like it's not my process. I don't own it, and I don't know the details around. We should I don't have know, them I don't, on there to talk about this because it's very interesting. Yeah, I, I think we really should. But um, there, are, there are so when I did my bootstrapping process, and we lay down several of the different versions of things because we know that you have to support those in this company, right? It's a matter of setting links to being what's actually active, right? So I don't know if the way he's laying down things that he doesn't adjust the current system; they're just there. So when somebody's ready to switch. They can adjust that link, you know, and I would imagine also that any sort of seasoned uh, relinge that would design these bootstrapping mechanisms would be aware that developers will need to support multiple code lines, right? And these some of these code lines might be historic code lines, so I don't know if they have to roll back GCC and whatever else that they do there, right? So then I'm not sure. Again, I'm not entirely sure what this that entails for them, but for us, for the new process, again, for us, it's swapping a link. So, so why, why this don't you just? Why don't you just let the developer install whatever they want to install? What's what's wrong with that? I guess there's nothing really wrong with that. Just historically, if you give 100 people a, you know, something, some task to do and no guidelines, there's 100 different ways they're going to solve that, that issue. So for me, it, it's the uniformity of all the environments. When I go sit at this person's machine, it looks a certain way because I expect things to be in a certain place, right? I don't know. So yeah, well, let, me, let me ask a quick question. Cause, cause, so, Sasha, you said Chef Solo. You said you mentioned Chef Solo. Yep. I so I don't know what that is because I've never heard of it. So how is it different from Chef? Is it something where like you launch, you would launch it, and it then that's when it contacts the server and says, There's "Hey, what should server. I do?" So so basically, no so, server. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> like when you run it, you would like do SVN up of the of the recipes and then launch it, and it would say, "Hey, I've seen new recipes. I need to run. Do you want me to run them?" You could do that too. So let me let me clarify a couple of things first. One of the things that so we have two, two or three different things that we were looking to get out of the bootstrap, right? So one of the first things that we want to give developers is the tools they need to get crap done. We don't care what they do with it after we give them to them. We just don't want them to waste three days getting installed when they could be doing something more useful than that. That's the first thing. The second thing is we want to give them a working chef development area because no matter what code you're developing in in this area, you're also a chef developer. So when people come in and they don't know what chef is and they don't know how to use it and you have to give them, what are you going to do? Send them to the apps code website and say, figure it out. So what they did and what we're doing, continuing to refine is the idea that we get chef installed for them. We get Ruby installed for them. This is all a lot easier now that chef has the omnibus stuff. So that it just comes in a package and installs, right? Instead of having to compile Ruby and, and, figure stuff out so that's one of the things we do and we download some default knife setups for them and then the piece that I haven't gotten to yet is that we actually create two dev VMs on their laptop we don't expect them to develop to develop necessarily on their laptop we expect them to develop inside the VMs and in a server that is similar to the one that the code will eventually be deployed on whether it's chef code or Java code or Ruby code all of which is being written in this area, so that's a lot of what we are planning, what we do, and. But the, the user's point. I mean, I, I actually kind of understand where he's coming from from the standpoint that, like you're saying, you have to be a chef developer, and in a lot of the environments I've been in, it's a desktop product, it's a native build, 
you're never going to use Chef. So th- the point being, that's not a particular design goal. I think it actually, I, that's a great, it's a great way to throw people in the deep end of the pool and say, not only are you going to have to develop this stuff, but your entire environment in which you work is no, 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 no. So that's not what I'm stuff, saying right? exactly. I'm saying that anything that gets deployed to production in our area comes with chef deployment pieces. So these guys have to be able to recipe anything that they are developing. Right. So that's what I'm saying. I think a lot of the, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Yusuf, but a lot of the developers that I know I've supported and I think Yusuf has too, they're doing different types of software that uh-huh. yeah. aren't using, good, they're not using Ruby, they're not using Vagrant, they're not using Chef to do any of the deployments. It's a totally different thing. So my, my point is, is that it would easy it would be easy to say like i can't imagine you trying to script a visual studio install and get all of that right yeah uh, and and i and i'm betting someone will tweet and say look at this chef recipe it does it so shut up and that would be fine but i think coming from the the model that we I often work in it's that <laughs> if you have a completely quiet way to install it chef can do it well, and that's the thing. Visual Studio, I don't know that it does. Yeah, we should we should do research this and I find out. I have an installer. No, seriously. Oh. Sasha's right. If there's an installer. I have opinions can... about things that don't allow you to do it I've, completely I've, silent I've been, and stop. I've been there. I've done that. And there are still pieces of software on this world that do not have automated installer options. And they are they're, the bane of my existence. Well, they used to be. They're, no they're, longer. They're, they're the bane of all of our... Because I mean, they can't it, but, be automated. Exactly. No, exactly. They, are, but, they are thorns in my side. But so that's the thing, though, is that's... I think that's why... There's eight. There's these wiki pages with 18 steps and yes. these images that are totally out of ghost images, right? That are totally out of date and all this stuff. That's where you get to that is because sometimes I remember a client with a I worked with. They had a dollar compiler thing, and it was written by some random guy in France, and and that was his baby, and it was not automated to use. You had to use the GUI and click on the options. And it wasn't automated to install. And so sometimes it's like they've made that decision and the product's been shipping for 10 years and I get it. So so I think it's one of those we're coming from different places on that. But I did want to ask everyone, Yusuf, you kind of mentioned our team, it's not the responsibility of release engineering to do that. What do you guys, I mean. Well, I'm I, not I a could, release engineer, so I get a pass. But the release I'm not engineer. Really, it's not really a release engineer either. Yeah, so I actually am on the developer tools team. That's my job. Charlatans, all of you. To make them actually... I'm, a, I'm an engineering services, so I'm not really a lease engineer. Okay, so but you DevOps <laughs> or something. Yeah. So if you, anybody else want to chime in, but that's not my job because I'd love to argue. I'm a, and I don't. I don't. It, I think it depends on the organization. I've been in places where I was the person doing that, and other times where I was fighting to get it done because right. I was the only one who cared. Or a lot of times in smaller organizations, it might be ops who are like, people, please stop telling us that it works in your Windows box. Right. Let us help you make something that is more realistic. Yeah, usually, so it really just usually, depends. Yeah, it's, it's usually you have, in, in organizations, we have like a, a, an entrenched like IT, like tradition, you know, very traditional like desktop support IT. Right. That's, right, on right. The edge, that's on the edge of their comfort zone. And so they don't usually do things like that unless they're... If it's not in their skill set, it never gets done. And so if you're somebody who is a release engineer, DevOps, you're like, I know that can be done. I can automate that. And then you start automating stuff for them. And or you not, do it not, for yourself. And well, then, well, so you know. that's, they're not all the times grateful that so you and, yeah. that, that, that's an interesting, something so that's, that they, they you know, take days to do. Right. So that's actually a really interesting point, right? Because sometimes, a lot of, sometimes they fear their hero. Well, a lot of times there, and I, I understand this, a lot of times there are corporate compliance issues Right, and so they this this process of this ghost image that is the pristine ghost image for 
all of 2012, even though it's out of date and the first day that it gets deployed, has gone through a committee process where developers weighed in and release engineering weighed in and ops weighed in and the IT people, which may be different from the ops people, weighed in. And so you get this this huge image, but it really comes down from that, like each team feels like they need to have a say in that image. And that's a totally, I mean, I understand the reasoning from a compliance standpoint of, of I've never met in a situation where anyone actually got to weigh in on the no, image. No, really, yeah, where do just, you work? Yeah, it was like, they, it, was, it was just a, hey, this is the image, we need this piece of software, this piece of software, and then you just yell at IT and then they come up with something. There's grab, not that, a, grab Seth's laptop and image that thing. I, I, yeah, I think, this, I think there's another there's another way this falls out, guys. Too is like everyone comes to me and they say, "Hey, I can't make Maven do X Y Z, or what is the material settings for PDQ?" And eventually, I just said, "All right, that's enough. No wikis are right only. No one reads a thing that's been no. ever written to any wiki ever. <laughs> everyone writes. I know because I wrote it all. But nobody. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Um, so I wound up doing this bootstrap thing and said, "Okay, run this script and." No one has any questions anymore. It's right. just like gone silent, dead silent. I, th- I think what was sort of the other interesting thing that Sasha brought up was the dev VMs. Now, I've never thought about that where instead of bootstrapping the actual physical box, bootstrapping a VM and leaving it with them. I don't know how many of you guys have tried to develop on Windows, but I'd rather smash my toes with a ball-peen hammer than ever do that. So I'm running straight out Ubuntu here, but I know a lot of guys here when they first started, they quickly installed Ubuntu VMs on their Windows boxes because they didn't have the same flexibility that I did. Right. Um, so I, I don't know, has anyone thought about that? Just like bootstrapping so, so, a, a yeah. set of VMs or something. I've, that I've is, that's VMs. widespread actually. Awesome. It's gaining more all the time. Yeah. Well, I think though, again, here's, but this is the, I think the differing perspective. I can tell you, you know, you're talking about Windows and so Windows is harder to bootstrap for a couple of reasons, I think. I, I mean, Microsoft has has a bunch of tools for this, but it's harder if you're if you're going the chef route of doing like Chef Solo. I think Windows is a little harder to bootstrap in that way. But the other thing is, if you have a product that takes forty five minutes to build or four hours to build on Windows, people are not going to want to virtualize that. They just aren't. And so there's a big hurdle about about using VMs for development, right? Because you want every last cycle of CPU. What is going to take four hours to build? So, uh, well, so games. video games are one. I mean, uh, you know, I. Well, I, so I, wait, I, you're talking about building building your app later after you've done your development and stuff, right? As no, opposed no, I, to no, no, no. I'm talking about applications where the development model is: I run a monolithic build, and the monolithic build may take 45 minutes, or an hour, or four hours, or whatever it is. And so, when I make a change to one file, and and um, Companies with big teams with huge products that have this problem, they will do these tests where they touch a file. They don't make any changes. They touch the file, so make or whatever their build system is will pick up the change and try to rebuild it. And they will spend all this time optimizing. If I just change one file and do a rebuild, how long will it take? So the point being that sometimes people can't do their work in VMs because if they make a change in, in one file and they're trying to get a bug fixed, a rebuild may take 45 minutes on, on a VM and may take 20 in the real world, right? Or in native, uh, not VM. So those are things where it's just a more complex problem. Wait, what do you, but you're not offering, and I'll, you just say that it's too hard to build in a VM. It's going to be faster in, on your not VM? Right. So all I'm saying is this is why 
so I agree with you. I mean, I think there are well, lots. Well, of I think I think you're not going to you're not going to be doing you're not going to be developing like that anyway for those types of applications. I think that's the other that's another that's another yeah, I think piece to that. Option. Yeah, it right. may, it's it's not going to it's not going to be an option. Yeah, exactly. Like there's there's. There's like so, a reason to do that. There's one other trade-off to this this bit though is that so you're talking about the length of time. I one of the good things to me about using VirtualBox and having VMs locally is that before I decide I'm gonna you know bring out the hammer and go wild with my operating system, I'll take a snapshot of it and then I'll rip it asunder and be like, oh, all right, that's all garbage, and I'll just revert back to the snapshot, right? So for me, it's not just about development; it's about deployment and and management that way, right? Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, it's well. You're versioning. You're you're not just versioning your code. You're also versioning your environment as well so with snapshots. Yeah, I don't have to worry about how to roll back what I've installed. I just roll back the whole OS to an yeah. earlier point that, in time. That can that can turn into a mess really quickly. But, but anyway, yeah, so my 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 thought on this is that you know I, I think you should give the developers you know kind of the freedom to to install whatever tools um, they want to install, but maybe have a short list and say okay. If you're going to be using some sort of a GUI on top of Git or Subversion or whatever version control system that you're going to be using, um, I'm only going to support these types of tools. Or, for example, like uh, I'm not going to support every Java IDE that's out there. It's just going to be Eclipse and IntelliJ, and that's it. It's well, and it's not my repo either, right? So this is everybody's repo. Everybody can offer cookbooks to it and make their own roles and go to town. We are yeah. collaborative where I work, and people <laughs> are just excited to have. I've, I've talked to them. They're excited to have the repo out there, and there are a couple dev teams who are already excited to make some of their own changes because they do actually develop collaboratively and have their own. I don't even know, like Emacs requirements and stuff like that that I don't care about. I'll, I'll give them the stuff to make Emacs, but they can take it from there. And that's the great yeah. thing about Chef and Rolls is that you can contribute cookbooks to the collection, make your own role, and go with that, and it won't pollute the main base bootstrap at all. So, you know, it's interesting. I, I had a, a client recently that was asking specifically about this. They were they were starting to do kind of chef on their production stuff. They were deploying that. They were getting kind of the configuration management story under control. And uh, the architect, uh, software architect asked me, you know, hey, wouldn't this be great if we could just do this on all our laptops? And I, and I thought about it for a second. I said, well, you know, th that use case seems really weird because you wouldn't be able to account for all of the developer tastes and developers gen don't generally want the stuff being updated out from under them and all of that kind of, those kind of issues. And he said, yeah, yeah, you're right. That, that probably wouldn't make a lot of sense because he was thinking, I think about his own use cases and he agreed, yeah, that would make sense. But you know, I, I will say this, Sasha, you've kind of convinced me that I probably got that wrong, which is to say that I think the cost that an organization spends on getting a developer up to speed in the, those first three days where it takes you a day to do run the 18 installers and find them. I know right. that was a big mess. Download there was a, them. Exactly. Well, there was a Windows share that had like 86 versions of every <laughs> installer package that right. everyone had ever used. And they're all slightly differently labeled, they're, too. They're all different <laughs> labeled. They're different versions. And the wiki, there's like 14 wiki pages that different teams put for different things. Exactly. And so the, Is that you the know the programming team or the client engineering team I'm not quite sure which developer setup will work or or the QA is it the QA team and they have <laughs> Who knows? Like they have selenium and and the developers don't care about selenium or whatever it is so the thing I will say that about that is that I didn't know the the bit about chef solo and the fact that your wiki page is basically we're going to give you an image with a tool that will pop up like five options and it'll do the best that we can do that if you shave off 
50 to 75% of the time to do that, you you save that. But the other nice thing about this, the more we talk about it that I, I actually do kind of like, is I'm sure we all have run into developer setups where they come to us and they say, I can't compile. And you go over to their machine and it's just like, what the hell did you do to your machine? It's like symlinks all over the place and things are all screwed up. And you might, I, I've actually said to some developers when I see a machine like that, it's like, I don't know, you should really re-image that machine. So you could, you know, you could get to a, a thing where, you know, like you were saying with Pivotal with the anonymous laptops, like even though it's your developer machine, you can reset the state of your machine every year because Windows kind of loses its mind after a year, right? You can do that and it's the cost to do that's not, oh, I'm, ta- I'm taking a week vacation to re-image my machine. Yeah, the, the, the cost is that you have to build and maintain that infrastructure. So, that's true, right, but that's, again, it's, a, it's which a team is, no, it's effort, a, right? It's a good, it's a good cost. Yeah, and, and I definitely want to say it's a good cost to be paid. The, the problem usually selling it is that people don't want to collaboratively maintain a tool even if it's in their best interest. And so sometimes selling that is, is where the, the, the hard part is. Well, right, under- so I, I do want to clarify a couple of things too. What we do with the dev VM is actually pop that up so that they can test their chef code in there later. So they can, it actually, we now actually have our own private chef where, where developers can create tenants. But prior to that, we had them pop up a little chef server on their laptop and a chef client so that when they wrote stuff, they could actually check it in right there and test it before they ever send it up to source control and stuff like that. But what we do is we actually install everything right on their laptop and give them the ability to then test code inside the VM. So one of the things that we do to mitigate the, oh my God, what did you do to your desktop or to your computer, is that we do try to install as much as we can inside their user profile without using root on Macs and things so that it's easy to create a new profile or to, to move on if you don't want to or to just delete like the RVM directory and stuff like that and start over if things get messed up. And I could actually do a whole bunch of talking about how I had to get things running as partially with sudo and partially as the user themselves to avoid some of the, the weirdness with that but yeah but it, even if, but even if you can't do that i do like there's there's a story here for if you want to reimage your machine cuz let's say you feel the developers like yeah i screwed this up and i just want to reimage it it's not like a 3 day okay do an it request ticket They'll take your drive and they'll right. re-image it and then you'll spend the, you know, that'll take three days and then it'll take another three days for you to run the installer and find the wiki page, which you haven't looked at in a year and a half anyway, and it's going to be wrong anyway. There's a way to actually make the cost of resetting the physical image. And I know a lot of people say, well, we do all of our stuff in VMs with Vagrant and, and that's good if you can do that. So I, I have to say, after this talk, you've kind of brought me around uh, well, on, this, on this, the one, the only caveat I will say that I'm still a little skeptical about, but but I'd be curious to hear, you know, because I, I think you were saying you you uh, support developers with Windows as well. Like if if you have Windows, we were talking about Visual Studio being a complex installation process. I don't have any developers who need that kind of stuff. So right, you know, so so that's that's the only thing. Complex I'm, I'm isn't, the, isn't the right word. It's nightmarish. I just want to correct. Exactly, you. exactly. You're you're right, and so that's the only thing where it's like. I think I'm convinced, but the own, then the devil is in the details of can I actually get Visual Studio and the Windows 7 SDK and the Windows DDK? Uh, yeah, actually, a lot of this you can, right? So JRuby ships with uh, uh, built-in Java, for one. So with my Windows stuff, I have a Chef Client Omnibus in there, plus I have JRuby built with, uh, with Java, and it all becomes available, and it's all silently installed. I mean, some stuff you can't. You're talking about the JDK, right? 
I have no idea. Java stuff, right? I'm talking about the Windows SDK, like this big... Oh, oh, oh the developer kit. Oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, and the driver development kit. Like these huge monolithic installers, and you have to like click. And, and I'll bet you actually there's probably an MSI. And again, I'm sure on Twitter someone will be like, you're an idiot, and that's fine. No, you, can, you can do almost all of it now. There are still... Right. There are well, still... And so there I did have to actually... Um, occasionally, which is unfortunate. One of the things I did have to do as a concession to my, you do have to do one thing by hand, which makes me feel a little dirty, but I had to. So a couple of things that I wanted to do as an assumption was that, one, you have some Subversion client on your laptop, and two, you already have Subversion credentials cached so that I don't have to deal with that because we also check out some common repositories for them during the build. And so what I do is have them check out the repository with Subversion, and that allows us to cache their credentials. Right. Um, the Chef Solo repository, but Windows doesn't do that. So I actually acquired myself a Subversion client for Windows. I won't tell you where. And then we stuck it in our Artifactory collection and said, sorry, Windows users, you do have to download <laughs> this one package and install it before you can get going. So, and so, for, so for Windows users, your, your wiki page says, step one, get Subversion. Step two, double-click the thing. Right. Yeah, step three, basically. go. Yeah. Yeah, basically, you it just says you know um, possible, but if you can't, you know what? What, yeah. what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, I could write like an MSI or something, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. All right. Well, so yeah, Sasha, probably, you could probably at least get it down onto their down onto their system and say when you're done, or even like execute it and let them deal with whatever pops up. I don't know. Right. Right. So Sasha, you said you you promised you would come back and uh, tell us how this. I hope to be able to goes. report on it. I've had like two or three people promise to test it and nobody's actually gotten around to it yet. So the other piece of this is that it shouldn't actually affect anything that's already on your desktop. I worked really hard to make sure that it matched any of the existing batch stuff that we had. Cool. Well, we'll look forward to uh, having the, the report in a few months. Pressure's on. All right. We'll be back in a moment here on The Ship Show. last segment tonight we're going to try something new and actually during the break we were talking about what to call it we're not quite sure yet but we wanted to give an opportunity for um us here at the ship show to to do a commentary on a particular subject of of interest and so i'm going to be going first this week with this new segment and so here's my commentary before our esteemed co-host sasha bates joined the ship show one of the posts over at her blog at braddyredhead.com caught my attention it's catchingly titled, Learning to Let Go, or How I Stopped Worrying and Learned to Love the Bomb. Upon reading it, it resonated with me because it helped to further articulate something I'd struggle with after founding my consulting firm. When I first started, I wrestled with finding my footing. A lot of elements of the new role were more difficult than I'd ever imagined, and I quickly found that the entrepreneurial romanticism permeating conversations on beloved startups over beers with friends in a mission here in San Francisco turned out to be... Well, more complicated in reality. Not unlike discovering all those little cute and or disgusting details you had no idea you'd get first-hand insight into after moving in with someone you've been dating for a while. This dilemma came up in a conversation with a close friend of mine, hey Jason, who isn't a techie exactly, but was able to diagnose what I was describing. When you're a full-time employee, he said, particularly in a specialized job function like yours, your capital T thing is 100% of your job. That's what you do. But when you're a consultant, that thing is now about, oh, maybe 25% of your job. 
And that's why it feels like you're expending all this energy just to tread water. Wait, what makes up the other 75%, I asked. Well, another 50%, Jason continued, is the business of the business, as they call it. All that fun stuff like invoices and marketing and all that. And the last 25%? I found that to be the most odd at first. The last quarter of your new job, he explained, is now, wait for it, therapist. Wait, what? Therapist? Yeah, therapist, he said. A very material part of consulting is working through customer requirements at a different level and from a different perspective, and working to effectively deliver on those requirements, which isn't always the case for line DevOps or release engineers. Sasha, in learning to let go, puts it more bluntly. As a consultant, you exist to be an enabler. Sound like the language of a therapy session yet? When I started as a release engineer, I didn't understand this. I really cared about the organizations I worked for, and I wanted to help them do the right thing every time. As release, and now DevOps, engineers, we have the benefit of a unique perspective within the organization. But my proposals all too often came across as, no, we're not doing that, likely because being young and stupid at the time, it's exactly what I said. What I should have said was, yes, but while doing that, can we also think about these other things that the other teams are worried about? Sasha continues, Our value comes from a long history of observing and participating in spectacular failures and fantastic successes. It's really starting to sound like a shrink to me. As time has gone on, it's become one of the things I enjoy most about consulting. It's a problem space that most full-timers, unfortunately, don't have the luxury to explore, through either their circumstances or because they're just too busy with their day-to-day -day work. Being able to take a step back and really pay attention to the nuance of an organization's systems, culture, politics, history, people, and the way they all interact ends up providing invaluable insight that is useful when it comes time to propose and implement solutions to business problems. And when you make time to do that, you become a better release slash DevOps engineer, because not only are you able to model your solutions to problems based on the stated requirements, but you're able to see and factor in the implicit pink elephant requirements. Of course, the punchline to this joke, as Sasha notes, this doesn't just apply to consultants. The best DevOps and release engineers, no matter the structure of their working engagement, make the time to do this analysis and factor the results into their solutions. And while it's certainly the case that the equation for full-timers has more terms to factor into it, it's no less true. So next time you have that urge to scream, WTF, no, we're not doing that. Instead, tweet the WTF, but without context, please. Go to the bathroom and cry. Run and grab coffee with your cohort, but whatever works for you, take the time to shake it off and move on to figuring out what to put after the yes, but can we? And I'm sorry to say, but our hour is up. So that's our show for tonight. We promise we bring back the DevOps Dear Abby segment. We're going to do that. So look for the hashtag and we'll discuss your questions on an upcoming show, probably the next one. If you want to get in touch with us, Twitter is the best way to do that. Holler at Ship Show Podcast and we will hear you and it will start a conversation there. So hope to see you out when I'm out in New York on October 4th. And so from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From Minneapolis, this is Sasha signing off. From Austin, this is Seth signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From Cambridge, this is EJ signing off. We'll see you all in a couple weeks.